You're listening to WCOMLP 103.5 FM Carborough and Chapel Hill. It's a Tuesday, it's five o'clock, and that only means one thing. It's time for another round of Snarky Faith with your host, Stuart Deloney. This is a space where we irreverently wrestle through life, culture, and spirituality, all with our heads in the clouds, our tongues in our cheeks, our hearts in our sleeves, and our feet on the ground. At Snarky Face, the questions or even the answers are never the point. It's all about the conversation. So here's your host, Stuart Deloney. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another round of Snarky Faith. I'm your host, Stuart Deloney, and Snarky Faith is radio for the spiritually disenfranchised. If you've had enough of the insanity in Christianity, well, you've come to the right place. Here at Snarky Faith, we're all about finding a sane faith grounded in reality and working to make the world a better place in tangible ways. We're here to call out religious BS, look for better ways forward, and, and, and help you realize you're not crazy. This religious stuff is completely nuts. So if you can handle your conversations about faith with copious amounts of sarcasm and also a bit of this, then welcome home. We're glad you're here. Before we descend to the snark, just a reminder that this broadcast and all past podcasts can be found at snarkyfaith.com and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Apple, Amazon, Google, iHeartRadio, Spotify, YouTube, we're there, we're everywhere. Just look for Snarky Faith. And if you like the show, make sure to share, subscribe, and if you're feeling particularly generous, drop a review over on Apple Podcasts, too. It helps to get the word out to new listeners. How is everybody doing? I want to just make this one confession to you as we begin our show already. I cannot friggin' believe it's already September. I know! Like, is anybody else with me on this? Like, what? Like, how did this happen? How did we get to this point? I understand many of you may be saying, well, Stuart, usually the Earth operates in an orbital way that moves around the sun, which gives us seasons because of the tilt of the Earth's axis and da-da-da-da-da. Yes, yes, I understand how time works. I'm just talking about how time feels right now, because, dang it, it's September. That means Stuart's got, wait, I already dropped two kids off at college. They're gone. Two more kids in high school. They're gone. September is here. It's among us. And that really just means one thing, that we are sliding, sliding into the fall. We're sliding here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, Chapel Hill and Carborough. We are sliding into the less humid days, the less days where we kind of feel like we are covered in moisture, which is just the way the South gives us its wet kiss of humanity on a regular basis. Thank you, South. Thank you, South. Just a little too much loving. Too much! Too much loving. And in thinking about the fall and the summer that was for our show, which was filled with a bunch of different authors that we did interviews with, and now we are sliding back into our regular pantheon of provocative proclamations uh, that pursue an epistemological polemic and the pulverizing of priestly piousness that parallel prior past political and presumptive pursuance of 
the presence of the purveyor of patience and perfection. Powerful points positively proceeding. Perhaps I'll pass on the propaganda and progress to the principal point of this prognostication that plenty of prophets are perverts of the prescript of providence. That'll do, pig. What does this mean? I'm actually not quite sure, (laughs) but I'm definitely stuck in an alliterational hellscape. But you know, what's also a literal hellscape? Christian nationalism, and that's what we're going to be talking about today, boys and girls. Oh, yeah. And I promise no more prescripted platitudes post-haste, positively. And I'm really going to stop this now. Precisely. So, yes, we are going to be talking about Christian nationalism. And for some reason, for some reason, I thought this conversation should be should be started with two quotes from two people who probably couldn't be any different. Now, I don't know that, but I'm just guessing here. So the first one comes from Jordan Stratton on Twitter. And Jordan Stratton said this which I absolutely love and cherish deep in my heart, is that Willy Wonka is my favorite story about children who have very normal adolescent character flaws and get murdered from them. Mmm. Mmm. Right, yeah. Willy Wonka is my favorite story about children who have normal adolescent character flaws and get murdered for them. That, that's going to be one aim of the broken adolescence that we're talking about today. But on the second realm of that, I'm going to dive a little deep here before we go very, 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 very shallow and hop in to some Richard Rohr. And, and I think that can balance what we're going to be talking about here is this, this weird childhood brokenness and fears and where we're at today. And so Rohr talks about this. He says this. He says, the most amazing fact about Jesus, unlike almost any other religious founder, is that he found God in disorder and in perfection and told us that we must do the same or we would never be content on this earth. This is what makes Jesus counterintuitive to most ears and cultures. This is why most never perceived the great good news in this utter shift of consciousness. That failure to understand his core message and concrete program by which you could experience the truth yourself, is the center of our religious problem today. We looked for hope where it was never promised, and no one gave us the proper software so we could know hope for ourselves, at least of all in the disorder and imperfection. Worst of all, we did not know that hope and union are the same thing. That real hope has nothing to do with mental certitude. Rohr continues saying, if you surrender to the fear of uncertainty, life can become a set of insurance policies. Your short time on this earth becomes small and self-protective, a kind of circling of wagons around what you can be sure of and what you think you can control, even God. It provides you with the illusion that you are in the driver's seat, navigating on safe, small roads, and usually in a single predetermined direction that can take you only where you have already been. Far too many people, no life journey is necessary because we think we already 
have all our answers at the beginning. And the church says, the Bible says, etc. So we're talking about a faith here that is not based in certainty. That the founder, Jesus, of this faith never based it in absolute certainty, but certainty sells, right? So if certainty sells, this, this, this ship of fools that we have, that is modern-day Christendom, is a, it's somehow a balance between these adolescent broken children that are all brats and also promising certainty to everybody. So we've got broken people promising certainty and saying it's the truth when it was never the truth. So, yeah, yeah. Ripe for grifters, ripe for prophets. I mean, charlatans, I mean, pastors, I mean, evangelists, I mean, yeah. So we have a faith that was founded on love and sacrifice and grace and compassion that's been taken and weaponized and shoved into these very narrow molds that it was never meant to contort itself into. And that's where you get modern-day American Christianity. Amen. Oh, yeah. So somewhere in the expanse, in the void between mystics of the faith and Twitter is where it brings us today. So we've got a lot to talk about on our show. We're going to be talking a lot about Christian nationalism and not a ton of time for crazy frivolity. So here's what I'm going to do. Here's what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm going to give you the lightning round version of the Christian cringe of the week, right? The Christian cringe, the worst, the best of the worst of everything else that is horrible and awful within American Christianity. Yes, the Christian cringe of the week. Lightning round. Here we go. Christian cringe. No, God, please, no, no. That's right, boys and girls, we're going to go fast here in the cringiest cringe of the week. So starting off, starting off right up top, right up top, I want to ask you a question. Now, for those of you out there that believe hell is real, have you ever wondered, what does it sound like? Oh, I can give you an example right now. Pastor, conspiracy theorist, and guy who doesn't know what an inside voice is, Shane Vaughn, Shane Vaughn is going to give us just a little taste of what hell sounds like. And it sounds a lot like Shane Vaughn in a Sunday morning sermon. His anger is not turned away, but his hand is still stretched out. Jesus. Can you actually imagine volunteer? Like the fact that there are people that voluntarily go to listen to this. I mean, this is about as pleasurable as a Sandpaper Q-tip towards the ears. Can you imagine him at like dinner? Can you pass the salt? So next up and giving your guys ears just a bit of a rest here, we have Kent Christmas. Pastor Kent Christmas that's going to drop a little science on you here. It's big news. It's big news. It's 
Science. No, I'm with the science team. We're, this is what's happening right now on the earth, and you can call it conspiracy. Or conspiracy. But I'm telling you, the enemy is still trying to alter the DNA of human beings. Human DNA! And it's been scientifically proven. Scientifically proven! The Supreme Court just ruled, it wasn't in major news, but they just ruled that the vaccine... Vaccine! ...cannot be labeled as a vaccine because it alters the genetic DNA... Genetic DNA! ...of human beings. <clears throat> Weird applause! I will concede this and tip the hat to Kent Christmas because that's a lot of crazy smashed into a tiny little space of a tiny little man. Ouch. So last up in the cringe, we've got Pastor Hank Kuhneman, or maybe we should call him Pastor Hank Kinky Man. Ooh, cause... Hank's got a little daddy thing going for him. Oh, yes, yeah, someone's a bad boy. Oh, yes, daddy. You are Papa. That's what Abba means, daddy. And I just want to say, daddy, you are so amazing. Oh. Who is your daddy and what does he do? Seems like Hank forgot Brennan's golden rule. Did you forget it? I'm not going to call him dad. Brennan, you're 39 years old. I would not expect you to call him dad. Well, I'm not going to, ever. Even if there's a fire. See, it's just that easy for someone like Kuhneman to stay away from any wink, wink, hanky, panky. You know, cause his name's Hank. Cheese. For Scott and Joey and you, it's always the answer. It's practically indispensable. This has been your Christian Cringe of the Week. I assert here and now that there is no better sound effect to begin a serious conversation about something than a bullwhip crack. Yeah. All right. All right. Fine. But yes, I mentioned earlier in the show, as we began, that we we're going to be doing a deep dive into talking about Christian nationalism. And as a really weird segue to get into that conversation, I wanted to talk about something first. I read a bunch of different articles and such for the show in preparation, looking for stuff that could work or doesn't work. And so I, I, was, I was reading an article that was about what are the wrong things to tell grieving people? What does this have to do with Christian nationalism? Well, I kind of am hoping here that there's going to be a lot of grieving here in the show as we talk about where we are at and these, this movement, this strong movement within Christianity that is so far off base that it really has nothing to do with Jesus, that in this moment and in this time, we should probably be collectively grieving. Now, as you know, grief can take on many different forms as a human's processing through it. Maybe on this show, it's all about snarkiness and mockery. But that's really, it's really just how we process our emotions, right? Okay, so I was reading an article, and it was really just bad advice, but I think this kind of bad advice is good advice as we move into this, because some of the bad advice that Christians like to give to people that are grieving are this. Hey, buddy, God has a plan. Doesn't matter what's going on, God has a plan. That is the ultimate Christian blank check. Another one that's terrible God only gives the 
toughest battles to the strongest soldiers. You must be strong there, pal. Oh, my goodness. But guess what? This is going to take strength. This is going to take, hopefully, that there's some sort of a plan involved here. But turning that bad advice into good advice here when we begin to talk about grieving where Christianity is today and how we can collectively pull its head out of its nationalistic ass, the best way to start this conversation off is let's begin with definitions. The first article I am going to toss out here as we begin to set the table of this conversation. This is a article from Rutgers University, and it's an interview with Professor Joseph Williams talking about Christian nationalism. Now, since this is an interview, I'm going to read to you some of his answers and how he is defining Christian nationalism because I feel like it's good for us to have words to move forward. And this is how the professor defines it. Christian nationalism insist that the United States was established as an explicitly Christian nation and that they believe that this close relationship between Christianity and the state needs to be protected and in many aspects restored in order for the U.S. to fulfill its God-given destiny. Recent scholarship underscores the extent to which these efforts to secure a privileged position for Christianity in the public square often coincide with efforts to preserve the historical status quo on issues of race, gender, sexuality, and the practical ramifications of such views involve everything from support for laws that codify specific interpretations of Christian morality to defense of religious displays on public property nativist reactions to non-white, non-Christian immigrants. Any of this sounding familiar? Any, any of this, like, like, sending off tiny little bombs in your head going, oh, oh, yes, oh, oh, yes, I've seen this, I've seen this, I am friggin' surrounded with this. Well, Professor Williams continues on saying this, you're certainly more likely to encounter Christian nationalism in white evangelical circles than in most other religious groups. And the most prominent religious leaders who back Christian nationalist visions of the U.S. tend to be evangelicals who are closely tied to the religious right. It's misleading, though, to conflate the two. Evangelicals are not a monolith, and Christian nationalism can take a variety of forms. There are vocal opponents of Christian nationalism who identify as evangelical, and strong support for Christian nationalist themes can be found in segments of mainline Protestant, Black Protestant, and Catholic churches. So we've got the what is it, where do we find it? Now, I'm going to take us to a place that I didn't actually think I'd be taking us to. Let's move to an article over on Christianity Today of all places. That's right, entitled What is Christian Nationalism by Paul D. Miller. And there's actually a decent job that they do here. And so, since we already talked about kind of what is it, where we find it, now let's take it from them to find out why is this dangerous. I know we know it's dangerous, but it's always good to hear why Christianity today thinks it's dangerous. The article says this, Christian nationalism tends to treat other Americans as second-class citizens. 
if it were fully implemented, it would not respect the full religious liberty of all Americans, empowering the state through, quote, moral legislation to regulate conduct always carries the risks of over overreaching, setting a bad precedent and creating government powers that would be used later against Christians. Additionally, Christian nationalism is an ideology held overwhelmingly by white Americans and it thus tends to exacerbate racial and ethnic cleavages. In recent years, the movement has grown increasingly characterized by fear and by a belief that Christians are a victim of persecution. Some are beginning to argue that American Christians need to be prepared to fight physically to preserve America's identity, an argument that played into the January 6th riot. So this is dangerous for America. And then they asked the question, like, well, how is this dangerous for the church? I love how they're different. But yes, they're dangerous in both ways. So the article says this, Christian nationalism takes the, play, takes the name of Christ for a worldly political agenda, proclaiming that its program is the political program for every true believer. That is wrong in principle no matter what the agenda is because only the church is authorized to proclaim the name of Jesus and carry his standard into the world. It is even worse with a political movement that champions some causes that are unjust, which is the case with Christian nationalism and its attendant illiberalism. In that case, Christian nationalism is calling evil good and good evil. And it is taking the name of Christ as a fig leaf to cover its political program, treating the message of Jesus as a tool of political propaganda and the church as a handmaiden, wink, wink, and cheerleader of the state. What? What? Did Christianity Today just do a sick burn? Christian nationalism, I, I, you know, you know, I think they did. I think they did. And hey, well done. Well done. Didn't see it coming. Did see, didn't see that coming at all, but I'll take it because it's absolutely right. Christian nationalism is obsessed, is obsessed with the national identity of the United States and somehow like making this part of God's plan from the beginning, the 12 tribes of this. Yeah, it gets really, really, really weird, especially when you get uneducated scholars, well, people that call themselves pastors and prophets and apostles and all these other words that like to say that they're the voice of God and the one that can read the Bible and interpret the Bible. Those that most of them do not have a formal education are out proclaiming that this, 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 is the destiny for all of us, right? That somehow God, that now America is a chosen people, which is just flat out wrong. And it's stupid, it's weird, it's idolatrous, and in so many ways, it's just the worst of America, proclaiming that it's the best of America. And it's definitely some of the worst of Christianity, even though, even though, so many have been nominated. So many are worthy of that. We'll just have to see during award season how this whole thing shakes out. But just remember this. You're all winners in my heart. So we've talked about what it is and why it's bad. But hey, hey, what about all those cool kids out there spouting, look at us, we're Christian nationalists. Now it's cool to be Christian nationalists. 
But when I said that I'm a Christian nationalist, I have nothing to be ashamed of because that's what most Americans are. We're proud of our faith. So wait, 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 wait a second. So that's not how words work. I mean, just because you don't understand the definition doesn't really give you the right to try to change the definition to be able to fit what you think it is. Oh, goodness. Why am I using logic and reason? You know, if politicians can't get it right, I'm curious if the prophets and grifters can get it right, right? Okay, okay. I mean, really, really, if Christian nationalism is just simply people having pride in their country and pride in their faith, well, then I don't think we'd be hearing a bunch of grifters talk about things like this. Our leaders in the beginning founded our government structure on Isaiah 33, 22. God is our lawgiver, our judge, and our king. So they established the legislative, judicial, and executive branches, branches of government. America's government was designed and patterned after heaven. Don't separate God and government. Oh, that bit of wisdom, that nugget of non-historically correct information comes from Pastor Dutch Sheets, which every time I hear his name spoken... I end up feeling like it's this like TikToker from the Netherlands that has issues with bowel movements. You know, like, hey, hello, my friends. I am Dutch Sheets, and I like to eat Metamucil every morning for my Sheets. Because essentially, that kind of drivel has nothing to do with anything that is true. Was our constitution based on the Bible? No, it was not. But does that stop any of these nationalists from saying that? Also, no, it does not. Because we've also got Christian nationalist pseudo-historian David Barton saying crap like this. It's interesting. If you know the Bible and if you read the Constitution, you find Bible quotes verbatim throughout the Constitution. But you have to know the Bible to see that. If you don't know the Bible, you arrive at the conclusion these scholars do, this is a secular document. When somebody tells me the Constitution is a secular document, they have just told me that they are biblically illiterate. I can take and open the, uh, open the, the Bible, have you read a Bible verse, and I'll take you over here to Article 1, Section 8, and have you read that. Oh, that's a verbatim quote of the Bible. Exactly. All great efforts by David Barton there, and all a bunch of hogwash. And if you don't believe me that these kind of talking points are becoming more and more prevalent within Christian circles and also conservative Republican circles, then hey, let's do a little bit, let's do a little bit of rapid fire here. So what do you think about Constitution and Bible, Michael Flynn? Yes, that Michael Flynn. About 75 to 80 percent of the Constitution is is created. And I, and I use that word specifically, is created by uh, the Bible itself. Nope. Anyone else want to try? Lieutenant Governor of Texas, Dan Patrick? We were a nation founded upon not the words of our founders, but the words of God, because he wrote the Constitution. He empowered them. 
We were a Christian state, and we've been blessed because of that for so many years. Nope, still not true, but good try. Good try there, buddy. Now let's hop over to Michelle Bachman. That's former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, who's always known for her sane takes on anything. There's no question. It isn't even, it isn't even debatable. The number one book that was referenced by the founders across the board when they're putting this nation together was the Bible. Also not true, but you know what? Let's give good old Glenn Beck, good old Mormon Glenn Beck a shot. Go for it, Glenn. Go. The Constitution doesn't cite specific Bible verses, but it didn't need to. Americans of that era knew the Bible well to understand all of the references. For example, the Constitution stipulates that the when Congress passes a bill, the president has 10 days to sign the bill, Sundays accepted. Sundays. Sundays. The Christian Sabbath. Oh, that's a sick, sick burn. You proved not really anything at all but bringing glenn back up in this instance did did make me want to take a little time to speak to those out there that like to follow after jesus uh those that may call themselves christians or followers of christ all that kind of stuff so um i was i was looking through some different clips and stuff uh for christian nationalism and i stumbled onto this Onto this bit, in speaking of Glenn Beck, where Glenn Beck is quoting us why everything is so obvious, but he's using a bunch of Mormon scripture to do it. And, and I bring this up to you not to mock Mormon scripture, which is always fun, but also just to mock the fact that this, this right here is what Christians sound like to non-Christians when they try to make the Bible the only answer to any argument. It sounds this reasonable. And I do this not to simply mock Glenn Beck, which is always fun, but really to let us mock ourselves in how we express ourselves. Listen to how nutty this comes off. Read Third Nephi. You read 3 Nephi, I read it on the plane on the way here. You read 3 Nephi right now, and all I could see was America. And all I can hear in my own head is my little evangelical self being able to be, but, but this book said this, but it says this here, but the book of 7th Ziggurat over Machiavellian. Yeah, it just, it just sounds like a bunch of gobbledygook. And I think that we kind of need to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves in this regard when we try to use Scripture to defend something that Scripture was not really meant to defend. I, I digress. I digress. That was a total aside. But, hey, hey, there's one of you out there that needed to hear that. Because sometimes when you go spouting off at the mouth, you sound as sane as Glenn Beck. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be called that. Now, let me take a moment here to kind of recalibrate where we're going and to remind you of where we've been. Because it's so easy to, like, slide into the snarky deliciousness of all of this. Yes, yes, yes. No, the Constitution has nothing to do with the Bible. We are not a Christian nation. And that's okay. 
I, I think we need to be able to tell ourselves, like, Take a deep breath, a cleansing breath. Take it in. Let it out. America's not a Christian nation, and we're going to be okay. It's okay. It's okay that the Bible isn't the Constitution. The Constitution isn't the Bible, but there are No. It's okay that those two things are not the same thing. But... As we've talked before, this leads us into very, very dangerous territory. Not only in regards to completely missing the entire point of the teachings of Jesus, which would, you know, is kind of a big deal. But, you know, Christianity's kind of been okay with that for a while. But the other point to bring up in this is that Christian nationalism ends up giving people especially when, it, when they're hearing this through their politicians and through their pastors and through other grifters they like to listen to in their own headspace, it gets really dangerous when we begin to think that anyone is the chosen of God and the rest of them are not. Because we get into really, really un-Jesus-y territory here, and it really leads us to a lot of hateful, bigoted, misogynistic territory that again, has nothing to do with Jesus. So let's go ahead and slide over into some of the territory where we can see where this gets mucky and where this gets weird and where this gets very un-Jesus-like. A great one to explain it to us about why this idea of Christian nationalism and taking over the government is so centered to Christianity and Donald Trump, which right now in many ways are very intertwined. Let's go ahead and listen to, quote, Prophet Lance now, who's pushing a lot of this scary crap forward. And it's only going to get scarier before it gets better, kids. So buckle up. Well, this is, this is in order to fix what happened in 2020, the right Republicans have to be able to be in charge of the committees that investigate. Yeah. So this is where our prophetic crowd sometimes gets, gets it off, because there's a process to a prophetic victory. And the process is you have to win the midterms, you have to, you have to control the committees, set the agenda that investigates what happens with Republicans and public scrutiny, yeah. so that it's not done like a shell game right. or, or avoided. When that happens, you'll see the decertification momentum continue. If there was to be a reset for Donald Trump going back into office before the next presidential cycle, it would be because Republican committees were able to facilitate a process where the truth got out at such a level that states would decertify what they had certified, and you will have a constitutional crisis that will go to the Supreme Court to see, because there's no precedent for this. What do you do when you have a decertified election post two and three years in? Interesting, interesting story, isn't it? No, no, it's really not that interesting of a story. I think the story is really, really the opposite of interesting because the story simply has to do with the worldview that you're pushing isn't aligning with reality and you have a problem with that and you and your other prophetic grifters are out there still trying to push this 
Why? Because it makes you money, and it gives you power, and it promises Christians a power that is not biblical in any regard. And one of the reasons I, I bring Lance Wallenau to the, the forefront here in this conversation is because Lance has been pushing this forward, Christian nationalism. Now, what's going to happen here is he's been a part of pushing this, this Watchman decree, which is this weird kind of like pledge of allegiance to kind of like the Bible and American nationalism. Yeah, it gets really, really weird. And I'll just do a couple highlights because I don't want to spend too much time on this because it's pretty nutty. And so they have a couple of these de declarations. We decree that America's executive branch of government will honor God and defend the Constitution. Okay. Uh, we decree our legislative branch, Congress, will write only laws that are righteous and constitutional. And so they go on and on with this whole, essentially, this, this, this desire, this wet dream for a theocracy that is pushing through this idea, which, again, Lance is not, he did not start this whole idea of Seven Mountains Dominionism, but dang it, if he didn't ever start pushing this thing through for the past probably 15 to 20 years, and it has, it has garnered traction, and it's really, really kind of scary. So let me let you listen to Lance Wallenau explain to you what Christian dominionism looks like and why it's so essential and biblical and you'll need some Purell once you're done. But it's important that we know this kind of crap is being pushed out into the world and called Christian. Hi, I'm Lance Wallnow. I want to talk to you for a moment about this concept called the 7M Mandate. In reality, it started with a conversation I had in the year 2000. I had been talking to Lauren Cunningham, who's the founder of Youth with a Mission, and Lauren was sharing with me about a conversation he had had with Bill Bright. The two of them were visited, actually, by the Lord within the same 24 hours, and God spoke to them and said they had a message to give the other man. And the message was that there are seven molders of culture, or seven world kingdoms, and that he who could take those kingdoms could take the harvest of nations. Now, this illustration is the way I see it. I look at it this way. I see those seven molders of culture as being the religion mountain, as a metaphor for something you've got to take or climb. Uh, then we have education, we could say family. These are in no particular order of importance. They all represent the forces that shape societies and nations. Government, media, art, which is the entertainment mountain, and uh, business, which is where we have the economics mountain happening also. Now these seven fields of influence are very powerful, so powerful in fact, that he who occupies the top of those mountains can literally shape the agenda that that forms nations. Now, why would nations be critical to our conversation? I think the distinguishing characteristic of this hour for the church is that we have spent so much time focusing on the church mountain, which would be this mountain over here, that we have maybe forsaken our responsibility to the rest of the world we're called to influence. It's interesting to me that when the kingdom 
is brought up by Jesus. It's his first message, and it's his final message. For 40 days, he's talking to the disciples about the kingdom. The kingdom, I believe, is larger than just what the church addresses, and this becomes the issue for us to contend with. Now, Lance abstractly does, at the very end, have a solid point here, is the fact that the church for the longest time has viewed the kingdom of God as something that is very narrow and small, but this isn't one of those kind of, you know, one ring to rule them all scenarios. If you honestly think about it, was, was Jesus here to force a certain mindset or a certain rule of law or a certain bit of religious practices and 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 mandates upon people like was 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 control a central part of jesus's message or was jesus's message fundamentally really about getting your own crap dealt with in yourself and how that will change how you interact and impact others around you none of this was about governmental rule taking power taking control no 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 like it, it it that that's that's the funny thing when it comes to christian nationalism because it is so antithetical to to the to everything that jesus talked about because jesus spoke against the empire yeah the roman empire yeah but that also would contextually mean the certain realms and empires and governments of today yeah so christ's words that called out the government in his time they're supposed to do the same thing again in our time so to think that we need to transform the government into something that looks more like the bible or a theocracy to then force our way of life and our preferences onto the rest of people, that just kind of sounds like authoritarianism, fascism, and honestly, a theocracy, which is pretty much the same thing, because that's not what God wants. That's not what God talks about. That's not what Christ talks about at all. At all. At all. At all. At all. Jesus talked so much about his love for those that are forgotten, the marginalized, those that are under the thumb of the powers of the day. So how do folks in Christian nationalism like that, that, that ascribe to this worldview and also say Jesus is king, how do they, like, how does that gel in their brains with everything that Jesus said? Oh, wait, the best way to be able to handle the teachings of Jesus in light of Christian nationalism is really just to only talk about Jesus as a king and about nothing that he said. Because all of that stuff, all of the teachings, all of that kind of stuff is too hard. And I would rather just force other people to my collective will. Because that's kind of where we get with Christian nationalism. We need to force people, take away their choices, take away their ability to be able to live out their life in the way that they feel called to and call that Christianity. 
Now, the sad thing is, for the longest time, Christianity has been seen as a bunch of rules and a bunch of sets of standards where folks can go and judge you for not measuring up to said standards. Yeah, again, 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 we're miles and miles and miles and miles away from where Jesus is. And Christian nationalism is essentially just an oxymoron. Because to be a follower of Christ and to ascribe to nationalism, those things never, ever, ever, ever are getting back together or ever go together either way, either way. But also when we're talking about different Christian mouthpieces and different political voices that are speaking out in favor of Christian nationalism, I think it's also important for us to listen to different politicians that are actually calling it out. And this is Adam Kingsinger, Republican, that had said what I feel beautifully articulates the problem and exactly where we're at. Yeah, I think it's an important thing to talk about. So first off, I've come to believe over the last year that people, more than even fearing death, were such a tribalistic people that they fear being kicked out of their tribe. And so you accept anything because now Republicanism or conservatism or Trumpism becomes your identity, and so you're going to stay. Now, my family, look, they're my dad's cousins. I'm going to say this as a Christian myself, the pastor's Many pastors in this country are failing their congregation, not even just by, you know, pushing kind of Trumpism from the pulpit, but even refusing to talk about how bad it is, how corrosive it is. And you have people today that literally, I think in their heart, they may not say it, but they equate Donald Trump with the person of Jesus Christ. And to them, if you even come out against this amazing man, Donald Trump, which I, I mean, obviously quite flawed, um, you are coming out against Jesus, against their Christian values. And uh, when you go after their religion, that, that violates the depth of who they are. And I've been kicked out of my tribe, and that's okay. Sometimes us doing the right thing is going to get us kicked out of the tribes that we are in. Sometimes we do not need to stay in the tribes that we are in, especially when they're very toxic and they are pushing us into places where we equate the name of Jesus, but we push dehumanizing legislation and ideals and bigotry towards others. None of this, again, none of this has anything to do with Jesus. It's more of an issue with language and politics and marketing, and it's extremely sad. It's an extremely sad place that we find ourselves in today. Now, you may say, Wow, Stuart, you've taken me on a trip to depression, Bill. And maybe I have. But at the same time, I think we need to use this as a reminder for what we are not. I think we need to use this as a reminder for what we are supposed to be. And, 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 and when we are able to see this flawed nature of, of where Christian nationalism has, has taken the, quote, message of Jesus, it should give us pause in our own selves to be able to recheck where we're at, recheck in our own spaces. Because yes, a lot of us listening to the show, I, <laughs> I don't, I don't assume we have a ton of Christian nationalists listening to the show. I assume that there are a bunch of folks that are trying to figure out how do I hold on to Jesus, but not to this toxicity. And where is our place? And what do we do? And where do we go? Well. I figured that this, this would be a good reminder for us 
to kind of go down, <laughs> to go down this whole road of mourning and and watching the grief of of what faith has become. But I think that we have to be able to see that with very clear eyes in the light of day to be able to say, wow, this is absolutely fucked up. And in a weird way that I think sometimes that that's actually a holy place to be in. Where we're able to note what is true, what is not true, and what is absolutely fucked up. Amen and amen. <laughs> so for the last part of the show, what I want to do is I do want us to be able to reframe and refocus. And so this next bit is a, uh, it's a snippet from a talk that uh, Father Richard Rohr did on the false self and on the true self and how we need to be able to understand the differences between the two if we're able to be able to walk out our humanity and our spirituality in a way that is honest and real and sober. So I leave you with this, with Richard Rohr giving us a good word and the word we need to hear as we sit in a place where we grieve over what's been lost, but also look forward to what is unfolding. The language of something's got to die for something to live. Now, in the book I just tried to write, I call that, that something that has to die your false self. It's not your bad self. It just isn't real. <laughs> it allows you to do very stupid things uh, without realizing they're very stupid. And now, normally, the trials of life, the suffering of life, the maturity of life, little by little along the way, you learn to distinguish between the real and the unreal, between what lasts and what doesn't last at all. And you recognize the different aspects of the false self. Your skin color, your sexual orientation, your ethnicity, your country, how much money you make, your car you drive, the clothes you wear. Brothers and sisters, every mystic and saint and prophet would say, that's what's going to die when you die. And if that's all you have, you got nothing. That's the false self. And we live in a country, and you live in a state, which prides itself, because it's the nature of the ego, on sort of, you know, pushing forward my false self to look better, to look more beautiful, to drive bigger car, whatever else it might be. Uh, you've never gotten down to the basic of who you really are before that, before you made any money before you got your law degree, before you were a doctor, before you were a priest. Uh, who were you? Well, you were a child of God. As Paul says it in Colossians, who you are hidden with Christ in God. That's the true self. And there's nothing you can do, nothing whatsoever, to create that self. <laughs> You've got it. You're stuck with it. <laughs> the only difference in this room is the degree of awareness that you draw your life from that who you are hidden with Christ in God. And these people do tend, all things being equal, to be much happier. They don't emotionally go up and down like the rest of us because they've seen through the shadow and the disguise of the false self. And again, I want to repeat, it's not bad. It's just inadequate, sort of stupid. <laughs> <laughs>
It can't get you there. It can only get you to small groups of people who look just like you do. And I'm afraid that's, that's been a lot of tribal religion in history up to now. Tra gathering people who are just like me and making ourselves feel superior and saved in that very small context. And of course, by definition, therefore, it's not salvation. <laughs> uh, I think it was Eddie Breslin years ago said, uh, Catholicism, and I know you're Anglo-Catholics just like we're Roman Catholics. He said to be Catholic is to say, here comes everybody. At least it should be saying that. Because that's the word that the, the church took to itself already in the second century. This universal people. This people who discovered the real, the substantial, their inner DNA, their divine nature, and that created the level playing field. That created the common ground. That created the community. And as I just said, once you see it in yourself, totally undeserved, unmerited, unachieved, then you know everybody else has it too. And all of your stating of preferences of these people are better, those people are worse, these people are right and those people are wrong, it all falls apart. It means nothing. It, 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 you start seeing with what most of religions would call the eyes of God. And it's beautifully put in this particular gospel from John 12. It all starts saying these two disciples, we want to see Jesus. We want to see. And then Philip passes it on to Andrew. And it's all about learning how to see. Religion is about learning how to see. <laughs> and the broader you can see, the more you see with the eyes of God. It, it's so simple that it's hard to teach. It really is. <laughs> simple things are very hard to teach because for some reason we're convinced it should be complex. You see, salvation, and I don't think this makes me a heretic. Some of you might think so. But so... <laughs> Salvation is not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When are you going to get it? And if salvation, if we can change our eyes to see that salvation is not a matter of if, but it's a matter of when, about when we're going to understand this. These ideas bring down tribalism. These ideas bring down these things that divide us from other people. These ideals of Jesus destroy ideas of Christian nationalism. They do not occupy the same space. They can never occupy the same space because they have different aims. They have different goals. And I, for one, don't want to be someone stuck on the wrong side of things, stuck on a side where I am pushing people away from the table, where I am telling people they are not good enough for God, and I am telling people that they don't belong. Because God's table is big and wide, and there is room for everybody. And that is one of the central that is one of the central messages of Jesus. Is that there's room for you, and there's room for you, and there's room for you. Well, it's good to be back. It is good to be back and hanging out with you guys. And I look forward to more as we contend 
and move into the fall and move into all the places where we need to be and have the conversations that we need to have. So before I send you off, just a reminder to share the show, subscribe, and give Snarky Faith a review over on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get the word out as I release you out into this wild, wide world. I send you out with the holiest amounts of grace and peace and snark. Go be the good that people need you to be in those spaces that you occupy. Go break down those walls and be Jesus to those that need you to be a voice of truth and love. That's all I got this week. I'm out of here. Catch you guys again next time. Peace be with you.